Good evening. It's Alex from the podcast you're listening to right now. I just wanted to let you know that the poem we're covering this time uh, heavily relies on allusions to the book of Exodus. And as such, we're going to spend a good portion of the episode talking about religion. Now, our personal religious views are too complicated to get into here, but essentially we treat religious texts the same way we treat poetry. That is to say, we take it seriously, but we're also not afraid to crack a few jokes of possibly questionable taste about it. I also wanted to take this opportunity to clearly and openly state that while we both have complex and evolving views on religious questions, we are unequivocally opposed to any institution or system of beliefs that seeks to oppress and or invalidate the experiences and perspectives of women and LGBTQ individuals. Uh, on another note, uh, this poem was really hard, so it takes us a little while to get our analysis rolling and figure out what the poem is even saying on a literal level. For that same reason, there are fewer jokes in this episode than is going to be the norm for the podcast. But we think it's interesting stuff and we hope you'll enjoy it. And I would like to apologize as well for constantly apologizing about everything. But, you know, some things need to be said and we'll keep it out of the body of the podcast and uh, isolate it to the little preambles like this. Thanks very much for listening. And now, without further ado... E.E. Phone Poem. Could you check if that's a reference to Edmund Olick Spencer? All way out, speakers make you bob south. Autumn mouth, rose pretty pilgrims drop rocket with Jeff Chouse. Mother wrote analysis, not poeturalysis. Get the Shelley phone bill SPA'd up by Roan, Lord. He's coming back to phone poem. What? E.E.'s coming back to phone poem. Oh. Oh, hello there. You didn't see me come in. Hi. This is EE Phone Poem, the podcast where we analyze poems. I'm Alex Dorada Wolf, and my friend here is Keir Willett. As per the detailed description provided above, we are going to analyze a poem for you. What are we going to be analyzing today, Alex? Today, we're going to be analyzing No Man Saw Awe, Nor His House by Emily Dickinson. Nor to his house. Damn it. Okay, again. Today we're going to be analyzing a poem by Emily Dickinson, which bears the title, No Man Saw Ah, Nor To His House. It bears that title, all right? Yes, it does. Well, it doesn't really, because it doesn't actually have a title. But people refer to it like that because you got to refer to a poem somehow. People call Emily Dickinson's poems by their first line, usually. Always, I think. Always, right? I think so, yeah. Does she ever have titles? I don't think she was a title and type. Nah, nah. Uh, so, this poem. I'm a little bit nervous about this because, uh... From our very brief read-through before the podcast, I have very little idea what it's saying. Yeah, um, I picked this poem because I don't know what it's about, and I thought it would be fun to figure that out. Also, that's generally something that I like in a poem. Yeah, it's boring when it's like, okay, he's talking about flowers. I'm pretty sure that God's face is important here. Yeah, it's something about God's face and possibly his house. But God's face might be a flower or something. I don't know. Mm, who knows? Um, okay, a little bit of a biography on uh, Emily Dickinson, just in case you don't know. Uh, she's a woman who wrote poetry. By the name of Emily Dickinson. In the 19th century. <laughs> right. Uh, in the 19th century, she wrote poetry. She did. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, her poetry is defined by uh, short lines, um, a generally pretty strict adherence to meter. Well, it's her own weird meter, though. Yeah, 
Yeah, she does, uh, what is it, Anapests? I should look that up. She does do a lot of Anapests. You know, IMs too, but almost always with uh, this sort of loping rhythm. Um, you know, she does uh, she does lines where she does quatrains usually, I think is her most common form, where the first and the third line don't rhyme, but the second and the fourth do. I mean, not universally, but this is awfully common for her. I think that this is the case in the poem that we're going to be doing now. Looking at it, looks like, you know, and, and what's more, though, I'm already seeing that even those rhyming lines, the two, four, are often very severe slants. So this is pretty unusual for a 19th century poet, really beginning to play with form in a way that is very modern feeling. Yeah, looking it up real quickly, she does usually just go with an iambic form, but she almost never does pentameter. Right. It's usually either a tetrameter or a trimeter triameter yeah she does a lot of the the variation between the uh the four uh right so uh for for people who shamefully are are not incredibly versed in their meter uh tetrameter Here, don't, don't don't shame them don't don't shame them they deserve to be called out and shamed publicly mm, oh dear come on man no one else is going to do it if we don't. <laughs> but but then if we, they won't love us if we shame them. <laughs> Unless they like being ashamed. Mm, let's not go down that road. Yeah, all right, all right. That That's presuming a fairly intimate relationship with our listeners that I don't think we've earned yet. Yeah, we're the kinkiest non-erotic poetry podcast in town. Okay, but my point was... We will never cover erotic poetry. Oh, God, no. Like, not, like... Mm, like, no. No. The point was that she uses a very sexy and erotic alternation between tetrameter and trimeter here, which is very common for her, right? So tetrameter... Why isn't it called... Why isn't it called triameter? <laughs> yeah, I know. What the hell? Trimeter? Like, God. Yeah, it sounds like a dinosaur. The trimeter? Trimeter? Trim trimeter sounds okay. All right, let's call it trimeter. I actually have no idea how you would say these things because I never have conversations in real life about poetic meter on account of that no one knowing it. But anyway, as I've been trying to say, she has alternating lines with four stressed syllables here and three stressed syllables. And this is very common for her. Um, this is, I believe, it's a ballad meter traditionally. The romantic poets liked it a lot too. It gives a very musical kind of quality. Uh, I would imagine fairly easy to adapt into song. Have people adapted Emily poem Dickinson poems? I'm sure they have. Yep. Uh, yeah, they adapt very easily. I would imagine. Uh, they also are very easy to read in a way that makes them sound stupid because of that ballad meter. Yes, that's right. It, you you can, which is, it's annoying because there's something in between, you know, the, this a meter that pushes towards musicality that intensely kind of makes you want to do it in this sing-songy way, which is really obnoxious. And not at all suited towards the content of her poetry. Right. Which is very kind of stark and austere and 
weird. Yeah, and I think if you're paying attention, I mean, like, you know, adapting a poem for music is one thing, and that's all well and good, but it's its its own thing. It's a different use you can put it to. But if you're, you know, if you're just reading the poem as a poem, you know, I think she really pushes you to want to, you know, not pay too much attention to pushing it into a really formal sing-songy place because of all of these ways in which she is loose with the meter and which she is slant with her rhymes, right? So it's really kind of egregious. It's also important to um, talk a little bit about her use of punctuation and capitalization, which is very non-standard. Yeah, her dashes, which in some, this poem, I think we, it looks like we only have one of those. Some poems, she basically uses them as her only punctuation. And uh, she also, she capitalizes uh, important words in a way that kind of seems very obvious to someone who's uh, growing up with the idea of free verse poetry, but at the time was very kind of weird. Right. Yeah, it's a strange thing. I mean, a little bit like in in German anyway, you know, that all nouns are capitalized. But so there's there's I mean, there's some precedent in other languages, but in English, it's a it's a weird thing. Um, and it's not all nouns with her either. It's important nouns. I mean, actually, I mean, it has a very biblical feel to it. Yeah, it, it, it's very much in the way that you get like God and him and word capitalized in your Bibles. Right. Which is relevant here because this is a very biblical poem. Right. So I think that's a decent enough Emily Dickinson 101 that probably didn't tell anyone who would be listening to this anything that they didn't already know. Again, try not to make the audience feel bad for not knowing stuff about poetry. <laughs> shame, shame. I mean, it's funny, but I, I think I'm going to have to edit it out. All right, man. All right. Uh, you are going to edit out the, the, the thing where I compared us to God, right? Yeah. So what are you drinking? I'm drinking a cup of coffee and some cool New Orleans tap water. I'm also drinking a cup of coffee, but it's a little bit too strong and it's making me feel weird. Mm -hmm. That's good. Poetry should make you feel weird. So you're in the right state. And I, I would have some barley water, but I ran out of barley. So I made millet water. Weird. Yeah, it is weird. It's not bad, but it's not good either. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so let's read the poem. How do we want to do this? Um, well, how's your sing-song voice? No man saw, nor to his house admittedly he a man, though by his awful residence has human nature been. <laughs> That's your sing-song voice? You sound like you're trying to do robot talk. No, I was trying to emphasize the meter. Uh, all right, I'll read the damn poem. No man saw awe, nor to his house admitted he a man, though by his awful residence has human nature been. Not deeming of his dread abode till laboring to flee, a grasp on comprehension laid detained vitality. Returning is a different route, the spirit could not show, for breathing is the only work to be enacted now. Am not consumed, old Moses wrote, yet saw him face to face. That very physiognomy, I am convinced, was this. Those are some slanted rhymes. Katana rhymes, I call them. <laughs> this sounds real cool, man. See, this is how we bring poetry to the youth. Yeah, and a rip-roaring motorcycle meter there. Motorcyclic motorcycle or <laughs> Yeah. Okay, what is going on in this poem? That is a good question. Pretty weird for three stanzas. Then in the fourth stanza, it goes crazy. Mm -hmm. 
So I think we should just try to like break this down grammatically and parse it up. Okay. Well, all right. First thing that I'm curious about is okay. The the obvious reading of no man saw ah is no man saw God ah uh, just being equivalent to God there now. Contradicting this, though, and contradicting what we just said about how she loves her capital letters and how that feels very related to the capitalization of words related to God in the Bible, awe is not capitalized, nor is his house or admitted he a man. So the obvious reading is immediately slightly undercut there. In fact, the only capitals that we get in this poem that aren't the standard capitalizations at the beginning of the lines are spirit in the third stanza, Moses, of course, in the fourth, and also a hymn, the hint you saw him face to face in Moses's quote, and obviously referring to God there, that is capitalized. Him is not capitalized in the version I'm looking at online. Oh, really? Yet saw him face to face is not capitalized online? No, but it's it's Wikipedia. Okay, so. I'm going to trust the book I'm looking in more than. Well, okay. The, another thing with Dickinson is uh, whether certain things are capitalized or not is not always straightforward. Uh, there's been a lot of debate back and forth about how to transcribe her poems. Right, because she had weird handwriting and didn't publish. Yeah, I think her poems were pretty much all handwritten. I mean, of course they were. Well, actually, let me see if I can pull up a copy of the handwritten version. That should be available somewhere. I do feel like the capitalization question is is moderately important, at least potentially here. The book that I'm looking in is this Harold Bloom edited poetry collection. And while Harold Bloom is annoying in many, many respects, he is a diligent scholar. And I feel like he probably has the best version. He's also prone to leaps, though. He's not a conservative scholar in one sense. Fair enough. In you know, political senses, yeah, he's fairly conservative. But in terms of interpretations, he can go pretty nuts. Oh, wow. Okay. So I just looked up the poem and in a Emily Dickinson book edited by Harold Bloom himself, the hymn is not capitalized. Damn it, Harry. So I don't know what to make of that. Uh, hold on. We need to get to the bottom of this. God, this handwriting. I can't even tell this is the right poem. Okay. No, I got it, too. This isn't bad handwriting. Yeah, okay, it's not capitalized. Yeah, it's definitely not. It's underlined. She triple underlined the H, lowercase. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm seeing, too. Um, now, does that mean make it capital? Or it's really important that this isn't capital? That is a great question. I feel like probably the former interpretation is unlikely because why wouldn't she just make it a capital H? That's not hard to do. No, I mean, you just draw another line there and it's a capital. We're very laissez-faire about handwriting nowadays. We are. We are very laissez-faire. Uh, now, never mind. She crosses stuff out in this, too. Uh, if you look at the so uh, in looking at the, the poem's original handwritten version, uh, it looks like the first stanza was actually written last and is circled with a little arrow putting it at the top. Right. Um, so if you look on the third line there, something is crossed out. Oh, by. It used to be, though, of his awful residence. 
So I'm really inclined to think, yeah, I'm really inclined to think that the underlying means she's deliberately keeping it like that. So that's super interesting. That means that the only capitals that are not at the beginning of the lines in this poem are spirit and Moses. Those are both just traditional capitalizations, pretty much. Well, I think spirit is worth holding on to for a moment because she very, very deliberately must have capitalized that when she is deliberately uncapitalizing all of the traditionally capitalized God words. So let's let's bracket why she capitalized spirit for a second. And I think it's probably I think she probably underlined the the capital letter there. I mean, the non-capital letter there where it has to be talking about God to stress that this is important and that it's not an accident that these other words that seem like they would have to be referring to God earlier in the poem are not capitalized. Okay, uh, I think we should probably go through the poem and just figure out the surface level. Right. But I do think that this is important because we've established that just because the words that seem to refer to God are not capitalized doesn't mean that they don't refer to God, right? Right. No, let's just grammar this up, figure out what the words mean in the sentences, in so much as there are sentences, because, you know, God is unique in terms of nouns in that special capitalized pronouns and stuff like that are used to identify God while no other thing has that. Traditionally. So, okay. Another thing that my edition has and looking at her uh, handwritten, though, has is a really you know, just before we get to the actual poem, uh, one more remark on 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 the textual nature here. Uh, each stanza is its own sentence, except the, the last one uh, has no period. You see that? So that's weird. Yes, last stanza, no period in the book or in the holographic version. Yeah. Um, okay, but we'll figure that out later. For now, let's do the first stanza. No man saw awe. Nor to his house admitted he a man. Uh, okay, so awe, whatever awe is, whether it's God or not, nobody saw him. And he t- did not let any man in his house. Did he let a woman in his house? Who knows? I mean, with a, you know, with most 19th century poets, I would be inclined to say, and with most 19th century writers, rather, I'd be inclined to say that this is just the generic traditional use of, of man as human being. But... With Emily Dickinson, you know, I think at least it's a question. Um, my gut reaction is that this poem isn't super concerned with gender stuff. Mine too, but, you know, throwing it out there. Throwing it out there. Um, okay. Though by his awful residence has human nature been. First thing I don't understand what that means. Okay. So, first of all, let's note the connection between awe and awful. Um, if right. there is a... Um, there's an obvious connection there. Now, if this were simply and obviously God, it would be awfully weird that she chose awful, which has a negative connotation um, instead of awesome, which has a positive connotation. Um, was that connotation in place in uh, the 19th century, though? It's a uh, future Alex from the editing suite. I uh, have edited out a 10-minute or so argument uh, that Kira and I had where we debated the historical usage of the words awful and awesome. Uh, Since neither of us are uh, linguists, we were really just going by what the dictionary said and a couple of quick Google searches, and it was not very interesting. 
Um, but if you're curious, awful is the older word uh, dating from about the 13th century, while awesome comes from the 1590s. They've both been used to mean a bunch of things, although awesome has never had the kind of negative connotation that awful has taken on and is generally used for nowadays. This isn't particularly relevant to the poem, but seems a waste to uh, uh, leave the conclusions of that little bit of research uh, high and dry. Um, so there you are. Howdy. Double future Alex here. Um, so I was editing that uh, into the, uh, the cast when I uh, realized that I used the phrase high and dry incorrectly. That's not really what that means. And it seems weird for me to go to uh, this amount of trouble for what was a 10 minute, really kind of pointless, pointless argument on a podcast. But here we are. Um, thanks for listening. All right. So, though by his awful residence has human nature been. So we've got a double meaning in the by there, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. It could either be a locational by or a causal by, right? I.e. it could either mean human nature has been beside or next to his awful residence or somehow his awful residence might be the cause of human nature. Uh, grammatically, that secondary reading is uh, a little weird. Well, yeah, but <laughs> Emily Dickinson, weird grammar, not exactly out of the question. Right now, we're really just trying to get a handle on the primary meaning. Let's say the primary meaning is, is, is the locational one. No man saw awe, nor to his house admitted he a man, though by his awful residence has human nature been. What we're getting there is that no man has seen awe, whatever that is, and neither has awe admitted a man to his house. Mm -hmm. Though human nature has been near awe's residence. Right. So so human nature has just been hanging out next to awe's house and being like, ah, shucks, sure wish that I could go in there. But awe's like, nah. Okay. Okay. So not deeming of his dread abode till laboring to flee a grasp on comprehension laid detain vitality. Man, I need a grasp on comprehension to be laid here. Tell me about it. Okay, let's see. Dictionary definition of deeming. Uh, okay, I mean, deeming, as I understand it here, would mean something like judging, supposing, unless I'm missing something. <laughs> it can be both a transitive and an intransitive verb. Uh, the transitive one uh, is basically what you said. Um not not different enough to be worth noting upon certainly um but the the use of the of there (laughs) kind of kind of killing me like that's not the that's not the word we use with that yeah no you're right it's uh, the use of a preposition with deem is unusual it's usually just direct uh subject verb and i mean direct verb object not deeming his dread abode something or not deeming that his dread abode something yeah not but not deeming of his dread abode that's weird yeah so i um so the intransitive verb just means to have an opinion or believe according to webster does webster give a give an example like i deem it fitting right i deem of it that it is fitting i suppose i could say that and feel like that was english over-labored English, but still English. But what I what is weird about her usage here is that even if we imagine it in that overcomplicated way that I just stated, I don't see what's being deemed of his dread abode. 
Well, um, Webster has some interesting etymology on this, too. Um, so it shares the root with doom, actually. Oh, really? And uh, legally, it's been used since the 17th century to refer to court judgments. Just have deemed things this or that in court for hundreds and hundreds of years and had been doing so for hundreds of years uh, during uh, Emily Dickinson's time. Okay, that's interesting. Now, I still don't understand what's being deemed about his dread abode. And for that matter, I don't understand who's doing the deeming. This is apparently a new sentence. So what is the subject here? Uh, we've got this gerund that's just hanging there, and the rest of the sentence is not really immediately answering these questions for me. Not deeming of his dread abode till laboring to flee. Who's not, what's, what's not being deemed and who's not deeming? Okay, let's, let's slow down. Not deeming of his dread abode. If we can't figure out what the chunks mean on their own, let's just break it into chunks and see how they relate to each other. Okay, so first line, putting aside that we don't know what's being deemed or who's deeming, just means someone is not de is not deeming, someone is not supposing slash judging about his dread abode, uh, which has got to mean the house in the previous stanza. Right. Um, so he's not going to do the deeming of his dread abode until he's laboring to flee, until he's trying to escape. Well, it sounds like you're assuming that the uh, the subject is the same as the the one whose dread about it is, but we don't know that. Um, I wasn't assuming that. But the, the subject of the sentence, I mean. Right, right. Is not deeming of the dread abode until he's trying to escape. Right, until trying to escape. Then there's all the deeming of the dread abode in the world, maybe. Right. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> Right, so after he tries to escape, he deems of the dread abode. <laughs> he deems the shit out of that dread abode. Okay, and then a grasp on comprehension laid, tamed vitality. All right, now there is, there is no punctuation here. So, okay, so one use of deeming is, I okay, this is incredibly stupid, but... Uh, you can, you can deem that the, you can have an existential deeming, i.e. I deem you a fool, right? That is proper use of, of deeming as I understand it. Yeah. To come to a conclusion. Right. That, that posits an identity between two things. Right. Okay. That's what you mean by existential. You mean that, uh, some things, uh, the quality, a certain quality can be put onto something by deeming it or solidify the relationship between a thing and another thing. Exactly. Did we just lose all of our progress? Okay, well, last thing I was saying was that the deeming of the dread abode that is being done by the unknown subject might be deeming that the dread abode is a grasp on comprehension laid, detained vitality. I know that doesn't make much sense, but... <laughs> Wait, so what's the subject? Well, I don't know what the subject is yet. I don't think that there isn't a specified subject in this sentence. Oh, well, maybe let's ask what a grasp on comprehension laid detained vitality is. Good question. A grasp on comprehension. I comprehend that. Right. So it's holding on to understanding. Sometimes a very tricky thing to do. Like right now. Oh, 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 I see. It's, um... It's a weird passive voice construction. Subject has grasped comprehension. Now, I think at the very least, 
if this is a weird passive voice construction, we can say that she is going way out of her way not to specify the subject of this sentence. I would agree. Okay, so the comprehension has been laid. The grasp on comprehension has been laid. Right. The the grasp on comprehension has been laid. Let's read laid down there because that's how English works for me. Maybe not for Emily. Um, wait, why is it laid down? Because laid down is the opposite of grasping. And and I can sort of see that making sense. And I don't know what other meaning of laid would make any sense here. Oh, I was assuming, okay, I was assuming laid to be a construction there where, like, you lay your grasp on something. Oh. To take in your hand. Oh, that is weird. But you're right. You're right. I could see that too. It's very formal and strange, but that's not out of the question. But how this connects to detained vitality. Okay, well, well, if we take your simpler reading, which I like, I think, better than mine. And so a grasp on comprehension is just grasping comprehension. Doing so, grasping comprehension, detained vitality. Caught, captured, vitality, uh, spiritedness, whatever. Getting it, but so I'm just trying to find the subjects and verbs. So, so our unknown subject did not try to deem the dread abode. Okay, I think to laboring, deeming of the dread abode, I think that this does not have an object. I think that the, that, that is as objectless as the sentences is subjectless as a whole. So I, at least to my mind right now, connecting to laboring to flee to what follows laboring to flee makes more sense. So the subject is is trying to flee, is trying to flee from the grasp on comprehension. Yeah, but it's till, until places it temporal. Okay, what if we read um, omitted commas? What if before and after laboring to flee? What if that's a, what if that's a clause? So not deeming of his dread abode till laboring to flee a grasp on comprehension laid detained vitality while laboring to flee, that is. Do you think that's credible? I think that is credible. Yeah, yeah I, that... Yeah, no, that does make sense. Okay, so if we treat not deeming of his dread abode as a complete clause. Right, well, I think we have to because it doesn't connect to shit. I think that's the best reason. I think so too. So it just means not thinking about or not considering the dread abode. Yeah, not not supposing anything about the dread abode. Um, and I kind of feel like the of, the weird of there might be pushing us in that direction. Yeah, yeah, right. It puts you in mind of dreaming of. Yeah, I was thinking that too. And that seems like a silly way to interpret a poem. It's It really is the only thing that this phrase causes, calls to mind. And given that the phrase doesn't actually make sense on its own, we all interpret it based on what evidence we have. And it rhymes with that, damn it. <laughs> so, okay. So not thinking about his dread abode... Till, while laboring to flee, the subject grasps comprehension and in so doing detains their vitality. Okay. Grammatically, I am getting somewhere with that. Yeah. No, I think that that is as much sense as we're going to make of this sentence on a grammatical level. So saying it again, the subject, while laboring to flee, lays a grasp on comprehension, which detains vitality. Right. Okay, moving on. We got that. That makes sense. (laughs) All right. Now that we have the grammar there, what does that mean? Okay. Detain. What does detain vitality mean? Detain in this sense 
Well, let's see what Webster has to say. Oh, Jesus. Uh, nope. Oh, wait, no, there is a, there's an obsolete meaning. Okay, let's hear it. The obsolete meaning is to keep back something due. That's not that obsolete. That's one of the meanings I was considering here. I don't really understand what that means. Like, I don't want to detain you any longer, right? Oh, okay. Got it, got it. Yeah, something due is unexpected. I was imagining due is in owed. Okay, so a vitality that should have been there right then and there is held back, is postponed. Uh, so the deeming either accompanies or results in this grasp on comprehension, uh, which has the effect of postponing or delaying an expected vitality. Okay, so I, I, I think we can assume that the comprehension referred to is the deeming of the dread abode. That's what's compre that's what's comprehended. Right, the dread abode is comprehended by deeming. Still don't really know what the dread abode is. No. <laughs> Except uh, in so much as it's like God's house. Right, but maybe you should be glad that you don't know because your vitality is not detained. Is that good or bad? I don't know, man. Detaining vitality doesn't sound great to me. I want my vitality now. Okay, we have a grammatical understanding. Let's just move on to the next stanza. But once we understand the grammar of all the stanzas, we can at least read it and know what the words mean, as opposed to reading it and just saying words that kind of rhyme. Yeah, okay. Okay, so returning is a different root. The spirit root is in route. Uh, maybe I should pronounce it route for clarity's sake. The spirit could not show, for breathing is the only work to be enacted now. Wait, why would it be route, necessarily? Uh, just to clarify that it's not tree root. Uh, but route also could mean to kill a lot of soldiers. Is that spelled the same? It's not spelled the same, but, you know, we're clarifying verbally. It's root, like a tree root, isn't spelled the same either. No, but I, I, I'm asking for my own edification. Is it spelled the same? There's no E uh, in the killing one. Okay. While uh, the tree one has an O instead of the U and no E. I know how to spell tree root. <laughs> All right, so, we're, we, so we've still got this gerund without a damn subject going on here in the first line. Now, in the second line, it could be our subject. We have the spirit. We'll have to consider whether that is the subject. But first, returning is a different route. Uh, weird line, returning on a different route would make sense. Returning is a different route is strange. I also don't know what we're returning from. Perhaps returning from fleeing. That's the only other motion thing here. Or returning to the house. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, I think you're, you're, you're right. It's, it's both of those things, because I assume that when we were laboring to flee, we were laboring to flee the dread abode. Oh, maybe it's like the Garden of Eden. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's poetry interpretation 101. It's the Garden of Eden. No, I mean, to be fair, the poem is about God's house. It's a little bit the Garden of Eden. I, I just thought it might help. No, no, no. I, I, I don't think it's ridiculous. I just think out of context, just a hilariously go-to explanation for what a poem is about. But I do think it's actually relevant this time. But I also, though, it is important that it can't exactly be the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden had people in it and God doesn't live there. Well, we don't know that God lives here. Yeah, fair enough. We also don't know that it's God. It's probably, probably God. God. Okay, but anyway, anyway, you're right. You're right. The laboring to flee is set up as the contrast to returning. It's got to be. Right. Although it's interesting because it seems like the fleeing was unsuccessful. Right. So it's returning from an escape that we didn't make. 
Right. So I guess it's more of a metaphorical. Like a returning from the mind state, which impels one to escape in the first place. Right. And maybe that has something to do with this notion of returning is a different route. I.e. when one labors to flee, one is doing so under the thought that one can do so actually, physically, perhaps. But... When one when one returns from the the fleeing that one didn't do, one perhaps knows it has to be a mental returning. Right. Just on a very basic level means uh, you can't take the same directions on the way home that you took to get somewhere. Or if this is all metaphorical or abstract or cognitive, you're not going to be following the same pattern of thought backwards to get you from the state of wanting to flee to the state of return. Okay. Returning is a different route the spirit could not show. Do we think that spirit is our subject that we've been missing here? I think it probably is, at least on a, on, on a first meaning level. I don't know. That's what I was thinking until uh, just now. Well, because I was seduced with my brilliant Garden of Eden metaphor. <laughs> because there's such a nice, neat little meaning there saying that God can't show man the way back to the garden. That's, uh, it's nice. It's, you know, it's very yeah. actually <laughs> what words mean. Yeah, but I don't know if it holds up, man, because God didn't exactly show people the way out of the garden either. Yeah, he did. He said, there's the door. Get out. (laughs) Uh, Well, all right. Let's leave that aside because that's getting into realms of interpretation. We're not supposed to be going yet. I think it is at least a strong possibility that we are meant to consider that the spirit is giving us our subject here. All right. But the annoying thing about the word spirit here is that that could refer to God or it could also refer to the spirit of a man or a person rather. Right. And and as we touched in the beginning, spirit is one of the two words that in Moses. So really, spirit is the only word that is capitalized in an ostentatious and unusual manner in this poem. It's not even that unusual. I would say it's capitalized in a manner implying divinity. In a way that the other references to God, including apparently in the Moses quote, where it is 100% certain that it is a reference to God, are not capitalized. So it's awfully hard to deduce this is evidence either way, because it could be that spirit is capitalized because it is the godliest of the god references, or it could be that there's an inversion going on and it is the spirit of man, a a human being or humanity as such that is being capitalized. And we are meant to pick up on this because by contrast, in a weird way in this poem, God himself is not capitalized. Yeah, yeah. Okay, if the spirit is the subject that we've been dealing with, then the spirit cannot show itself the route back. Uh, If it's a being other than the subject, then it is a being that the subject might be looking to for help that is not able to show it help in this case. Whatever the spirit is, it can't show the route. Okay, so that's definitely what that means grammatically. Because for breathing is the only work to be enacted now. All right, that makes sense. Grammatically, anyway. (laughs) Right. No, and I think it makes sense, uh, even without asking questions as to the identity of the spirit, the idea that spirit has no dominion over... uh, Breathing. Although, (laughs) oh my, uh, well, 
You got to do your Greek thing last time. I get to do my Latin thing this time. Latin, Spiro, it's to breathe. Yeah, there's the same connection in the Greek, actually. Uh, breath and spirit. They're obviously linked, but they're also obviously being separated here in a way that splits down the meaning of spirit itself. And it also connects in with vitality in an interesting way. Okay. And not consumed, old Moses wrote, yet saw him face to face. That very physiognomy, physiognomy, I am convinced, was this. Was what? <laughs> and we get no period ending this, so we are clearly not meant to be satisfied. Um, okay, now, okay, this is, this is a good chance to bring up the Exodus strangeness, because... It might be ambiguous on some level, but I think we can we can basically say yet saw him face to face has to be more or less Moses talking about meeting with God, which occurs in Exodus uh, 33 In Exodus 33, 11. Uh, it says that Moses uh, is talking to, to God face to face, just straight up says that. And then a little bit later at the end of uh, 33, it talks about how Moses is like, hey God, I really wanna see your glory. And God is like, okay, but you can only see my back. I'm gonna hide you in this rock so that you don't see my face. But because if you see my face, you're gonna be like burned up in all my, my, my glory and beauty or something, right? Okay, so <laughs> the ambiguity about whether Moses sees God face to face is right there in the Bible. Yeah, important. Uh, it's important to note that uh, both of our translations of the Bible use the exact phrase face to face here. You're referencing the King James, and I am referencing um, version of the Torah uh, published by the Jewish Publication Society in 1962, third edition. Right. Okay. So neither of us are great with the Hebrew, but that seems like pretty, pretty strong evidence that, that that's got to be a decent translation there. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's a translation from the Hebrew and... Um, the King James. Was the King James from the Latin or the Greek? I believe that at least some of the people who worked on it had access to the Hebrew, but I would imagine that the Latin was was probably the common the common tongue that they all had. Um. Well, let's find out. <laughs> As this is important, the interpretation of this Emily Dickinson poem. It is important. People like learning things in podcasts. Nope, it was from the Hebrew. Yeah, it was from the Hebrew and the Greek, actually. The Latin wasn't. Uh, the Latin wasn't involved. Huh. The Latin ones aren't very good. Yeah, yeah. The Greek is apparently ex excellent. Yeah, and I mean, all, the New Testament was written all in Greek anyway. Yeah, sure, of course. But the but the uh, Septuagint is is you know the story with with the the translation of that. I don't. Uh, what is that? Please tell oh, me. Oh, apparently, you know, all of the the wisest men in every Jewish community across the, the Mediterranean all got together and were put into separate rooms and told to work on this translation. And they all produced a word for word identical translation on their own. That seems unlikely. <laughs> hey, man, that's what they say. <laughs> Okay. Um, so I think we should do we should do the rest of our interpretation of this poem separately and come back and I think we will agree on every point. Brilliant. 
Anyway, returning to the Bible, I don't think we mentioned that uh, what's going on at this point of the Bible is this is right after the whole golden calf incident when Moses brought the tablets with the commandments on them down from the mountain and was like, first rule on the, my freaking tablets is don't do that. Yeah. So what's going on in this, this book seems to have something to do then with Moses wanting to prove to his people something that mere carrying down of the laws didn't prove. Possibly even Moses wanting to prove to himself, because the bit at the end with him wanting to see God really sounds like it's about him, you know? So, so wanting to have this direct contact with the divine that legitimates the the bringing down of the laws uh, that apparently the you know the laws themselves are are not enough to prove. I don't think it is that um, he needs proof. It seems to me more that um, he lacks some sort. He lacks an understanding of what God is that would allow him to communicate the will of God effectively. Yeah, like, sure. I mean, you could say it's about looking for the principle behind the laws. Just because I don't think that Moses here is being doubtful. No, I I don't get the sense that he's being doubtful in the sense that he doesn't believe in God or think that God is great. I do think he's being doubtful about the self-sufficiency of the divine laws, though, because if the divine laws did everything that they're supposed to do, then he shouldn't need this, right? Why why shouldn't he need it? Well, I mean, frankly, it's it's an issue because it's an issue for us, right? We don't have Moses's option, right? We don't we don't have the option of being like, hey God, like I know you you've given us like all of these great books and all of these great laws and they cover absolutely every circumstance and don't leave any questions open for interpretation whatsoever. But I'd still like really like to, you know, actually hang out and get to know you face to face. Right. So so if if it weren't you know, Moses is the sign. Moses's desire to see God here is the sign that we are legitimated in our having doubts and problems just going by words and laws. But we probably shouldn't interpret the Bible too long, man. <laughs> uh, it's easier than the poem. Yeah, weirdly it is. <laughs> I mean, this whole section of the Bible is Moses building a tent where basically he meets with God for a good long time. And God comes down in a big cloud pillar and talks to him. And they have this whole back and forth. Like, dude is just, like, asking God questions and getting answers. Yeah. I almost want to say, though, that there's there's a, a split that then occurs between the laws of God and the direct speech of God uh, that is then mirrored in the split be- between speech and seeing and then once again breaks off into a a split between seeing the back and seeing the face right each of these each of these splits seems to be more personal more direct more particular than the thing that came before it but each time it's slightly problematic because the the strong arm of that division uh in each case ought taken on its own terms to be enough for us 
but it's not enough for us. But be that as it may, the question that we're really dealing with here is just that is mostly this question of of whether Moses sees him face to face or not, because the actual ending of the poem reinforces that the idea that he did or that if he didn't, it was problematic because she says that very physiognomy I am convinced was this. And physiognomy is or was a sort of 19th century pseudoscience that purported to deduce people's character by their faces. Right. Um, It's also an older word, just meaning the faces as representative, uh, a person's features as representative of their character. Um, That was like they tried to make into a science and then failed because it turned out not to be true. Heigl has a really good section in the phenomenology of why that, that does not make a good science. It's one of the few moderately accessible portions of the phenomenology. I highly recommend it. And so relevant, too. Yes. You want me to dig that out? No, I'm I'm sure it is relevant. Uh, I'm sure (laughs) defining the qualities of a science is actually quite uh, germane to modern life. The reasons why you can't do that are really obvious to us in a certain way, like because obviously the science didn't go anywhere. And and one of the obvious things that a science is supposed to. But at the time, a lot of people were taken up by it. Still not as weird as phrenology, though. No. His cranial bulges clearly indicate he is evil. Oh, yeah, because physiognomy is not insane. We do it all the time. It's just not scienceable. It's an art. Judging people by how they look is an art. Yeah, in a certain sense of the term, it is. But but judging people by the bumps on their skull is just stupid. Take that, phrenology. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I bet that all the phrenologists had really big dumb bumps. <laughs> yeah. Their bumps were so dumb. Whoa, me think bump makes smart. <laughs> Cuz oh, that's fantastic. Their dumb bumps made them think the dumb bumps made them smart. Yeah. Yeah. I I think we got their number. We may have picked a poem that was too hard. Oh god, yeah. All right. Now come on, man. We can do this. Let's just find a picture of Emily Dickinson's face (laughs) and we can analyze it from that. I do have one of those. No, let's start with that. I think that's good. I think that's good. A man's house is his face. Well, no, God's house is his face. Right. Right. Okay, I think we could do some deductive poem analysis here, which is that there are two characters in the poem. Uh, We have to. There's just, there's nothing in this poem that makes me want to read it any other way. Three if you count Moses, but I think his role is self-contained. I want to basically say that this, I want to keep things relatively simple for us and say that this is a poem, at least that the, the basic meaning is about a dialogue between a human soul and God for the sake of argument. Yeah, let's just say it's Emily Dickinson. Yeah, let's just say it's Emily Dickinson. Okay, okay, why not? Because even if she does mean it to be some sort of undefined soul or character, obviously poets project themselves into all their characters, yada yada, we'll call it the poet. The poet, the poet and God. Right. So upon grammaring out this poem, the main thing that jumps out is how out of her way she goes to not have subjects to 
for her sentences. The lack of a subject is kind of similar to the idea of God's presence being defined but not being able to be seen. A thing that you know is there but you can't perceive. So grammatically, there is this entity which exists but there's no word to anchor it to. Similar to God exists, but there's no physicality to anchor it to. Now, I think we could read a kind of parallel there between that, well, a sort of inverted parallel between that and stripping away God's capitals, because stripping away God's capitals humanizes God while getting rid of the element of the subject and the implied subjectivity that that contains pushes the human pushes the poet towards God's universality. Oh God, I I think we were so overwhelmed by the time we got to the end of this poem, we didn't even note the obvious, which is Moses drops his subject and the eye comes in in the last line. Moses says, am not consumed. The last line is, I am convinced was this. So I am convinced that we are correct Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. In saying that the first person is the correct person here. Notable, too, that I is capitalized there. Of course, it's also the beginning of the line. But just noting that, it'd be better if it wasn't the beginning of the line, but can't have it all. No, for sure. Because that'd be, that'd be a cool reveal if, the, if we were like, oh, my God, and the I is capitalized, too, and we missed that. Right, right, right. That would be. But, uh, okay. Uh, then we still have the relation with spirit to work out before we can get all of our characters down here. But let's, 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 let's just go through it now, assuming that, that underneath it, underneath these very difficult to, to ascertain garments is a more or less straightforward poem about this intermingling of I and God. You know, uh, what? something else that's standing out to me here is um, uh, in looking at the handwritten version and how the uh, the first stanza was clearly written last, it's actually very different in structure to the other three because we do have subjects and verbs here. Mm-hmm. It's almost like she wrote that first bit to kind of give us an in. That's, yeah, I mean... Like, you had these three and she's like, okay, you know what? No one is going to know. I, I hate to rely on deductions like that, but in this case, that actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, I mean, even not looking at the handwritten version. Mm-hmm. No, the the first stanza has a general nature. The difference is very clear. It's a general nature, you know, it's like the thesis statement. Yeah, it is. Okay, so let's read it like that. So, nobody saw God. All right, and here I think the uh, characterization of God as awe is really serving the function of um, that depersonalization. Making God an abstract feeling. That's as abstract as you can get. And even the the lack of capitalization, I mean, insofar as the capitalization is God's punctuational mark, you know, it's stripping away, weirdly, in, in stripping away a quality that denotes God's particular divinity, it's paying service to God's universality. Okay, but be that as it may, no man saw God. So there's kind of a denial of Moses here, or at any rate, a a rereading of Moses. I almost want to say that Moses not being consumed is the proof that he didn't see God face to face. Or if he did see God face to face, there was something that he still missed. Right. Um, Oh, a little poetic vocabulary word here is... uh, uh, we have an example of a uh, metonymy with awe and God here, which is where you use a related thing to stand in for a thing. Huh. 
that was just some vocab. I'm sorry if you knew that. It must have sounded awfully condescending. The point I wanted to make was that no man saw awe, just taken as a simple um, clause there, is kind of a, a truism. Of course you didn't see awe. Awe isn't visible. Sure, sure. So yeah, you, you can't see a feeling. So in that reading, it's not saying that Moses didn't experience, wasn't in contact with God. Right. Just that, well, he didn't see him because God isn't a thing you can see. Right. That's why this the, the Exodus, the ending of that Exodus chapter where Moses sees God's back is so strange. I mean, what the hell is the back of God? All of that stuff with um, the physical form of God that part of Exodus really kind of leans on in a weird way. Certainly, um, religious tradition since those days, those ancient, ancient days, uh, has been very much to abstract uh, your Old Testament God. But no, the, the text of the book is like, there was a thing that was going into a tent and talking to Moses. Right. And he brought down clouds to hide him so no one else would see If him. he has no form to hide, then why is he hiding himself? Okay, but his house. It's very weird. Now, I do think that we need to read house here as appearance, not just face. But I would say that this question that we're, we're, we're playing with here has to be the question of house. As, as I was just saying, um, the section of the Bible um, in Exodus is uh, Moses makes a tent, a special tent for meeting God, God's house. Yeah, right. The tabernacle. Yeah. Is that the tabernacle? Yeah, no, I, I know it's confusing, but I'm pretty sure the tabernacle is a tent. Right. And that's different than the Ark of the Covenant. Right. <laughs> because they're two super magic thingies that happen literally within two pages of each other. We can read the tabernacle then as, right, okay, so what do people other than than Moses see? They see Moses going into uh, essentially God's house. There is, a, there is at least a denial of the explicit reading of, of Exodus and Moses going on here. She's saying, no, Moses did not go in to that house. He did not see God because the tabernacle is not God or pushing that a level further. The appearance of God is not God. Right. So, okay. So, nor to his house admitted he a man. It, what nor to his house admitted he a man is saying is that he didn't let anybody inside his house. Right. But if we're reading the tabernacle as his house, uh, she is explicitly still denying the exodus. I mean, I want to say that there's there's a deeper reading going on there that no one sees God. It's a theological transposition of the, of the problem of physiognomy. You, you see someone's face contorted in anger and you you think that you've seen anger you think that you've seen the soul of this person you've understood it later on you find out no this person was was crying and sad and and you interpreted it as as anger so your sense of being given a direct access to the soul through the face was was false and necessarily so the face is not the soul in a similar way when god appears to you the appearance is not the actuality of god okay so then uh, though by his awful residence has human nature been right uh but but nonetheless human nature has always been and has been caused by a proximity to this appearance 
Although we do get the reading also that God's house is the author of human nature. Yeah, I think that that's actually a strong and interesting reading because, well, I think that that's a necessary reading here. Human nature, as revealed in the Bible, if we want to believe the Bible, was caused by God's various interventions, by God's various appearances. And if those weren't God, then God didn't really cause human nature, his house did. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I like that. Let's see if it holds up to the rest of the poem. Now, looking at the second stanza in the light of the Exodus stuff, the laboring to flee, fleeing Egypt. Uh Uh-huh. Damn right. Yeah. So that's that, at least. It's not the Garden of Eden, it's Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay, so the way... um. The way I'm reading that is actually just the uh, the Jews didn't think about what God looked like until they were running from Egypt. Right. That wasn't a question in the book of Genesis. God doesn't God doesn't show up. Closest I think you probably get is um, uh, Jacob wrestling the angel. And even that is an angel. Um, well, and then it's interesting, though, it's what Moses does to the people that makes them a people. And that gives them a vision, a true vision of themselves as as a people. And that establishes the idea that there is a natural and divine uh, home for them uh, that is Israel. So I want to I want to say that was defined back in Abraham. Uh, Abraham says, this is your land. This is your you know, your people will be here. Yeah, No, but come on, man. It's it's Moses that makes the Jews the Jews, not not Abraham. It's the struggle of the flight from Egypt that uh, legitimates them as a people and a spiritual level. I don't see any any reading of Exodus that, that doesn't that doesn't reveal that. No, that that's true enough. Um, a genuine, a genuine thinking of themselves uh, in this fashion, I think, uh, arises interestingly at the same time as the appearance of God to Moses. And I think Dickinson might be pointing at a link there. Well, there's got to be a reason why she's making this connection between the appearance of God, the language of the house of God. If the secret level of this, secret level one of this poem is she's talking about the appearance of God when she is apparently talking about the house of God, then the secret level two of this poem has to be an answer to the question of why talk about it like that. Right, right. Secret level one is that God's house isn't heaven or Eden or something like that. It's the literal manifestation of God in the world. Yeah, but then that's connected with a whole host of questions that come up with the Exodus passage that she explicitly references here. But but, but okay, let's just check and make sure that, that secret level one works through the poem. Very good. Okay, so no one thought about what God looked like until trying to escape oh, right because of because they were slaves in Egypt. right and also right and and this grasping oh like and the thing about them having to wander for way longer than they thought uh, what about that? it's a detaining of vitality they're trying to understand the form of god and and they're oh oh the golden calf they're they're trying to understand the form of god and the golden calf is a bad way to do that and moses is a good way Right. So so they tried to find the form of God by building the golden calf, which detained their vitality, which, okay, that's very literal. Way more literal than I would have thought was possible. Yeah, yeah. And I think Moses' attempt to do it detains his vitality on another level, perhaps. It might have something to do with with Moses' being ultimately damned never to enter the promised land. 
Damned is a little harsh. Well, fated. God was still very pro-Moses. Yeah. I mean, Moses is such a great character, though, because Moses's favor in the eyes of God does have something to do with his being rebellious as well. Well, yeah, I mean, he led a rebellion. Rebellious to God. Because there's a couple of points in which Moses, like, literally is like, God, no, that's messed up. You can't do that. There is a direct connection between um, the looking at God's face metaphor in the Bible and the bit where Moses um, strikes the rock in the desert. Right. That ultimately is what keeps him out of uh, the promised land. The cleft in the rock where he hides while God passes by. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some symbolic echoing going on there. Oh, that's that's good. I hadn't thought of that. Hello, Alex here. I just realized probably not exactly clear what I'm talking about here. So I'm just going to read you the bit of Exodus in question. This is Exodus 33 verses 19 through 23. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will shew mercy on whom I will shew mercy. And then he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Probably should have quoted that bit earlier, but, well, here we are. Alright, back to the Biblianalysis. Biblianalysis. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Man, we are doing a better job interpreting Exodus than we are this poem. <laughs> Tune in ne- next week for E.E. Uh, e. Phone Bible. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, but returning is a different route. We've switched now. This is no longer Egypt, but I think that we're, we're, we're given to understand that by the line itself. Returning is a different route also in the sense that this return that we mean is, is not back to the place that we've literally been fleeing from. It is a return back to a primordial nature. This does have Garden of Eden implications still. It's, you know, God can't show them the way back. They have to wander in the desert for 40 years, I think is the very surface level reading there. Yeah, I would agree. Um, right. So you think it's, it's a, the laboring, it's, it's a return from the laboring to flee, but actually the laboring to flee turns out to be the return. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, that, that's a a contradiction that's revealed to not be a contradiction. (laughs) You tried to trick us there, Dickinson, but you did. And then we spent two hours reading your poem and that's, that's why they call her tricky dick. Oh, tricky Dickieson. <laughs> okay, um, so do we want to read spirit as God here, though? Because that is the obvious reading with what we're doing, and yet there still is the question of why spirit gets the caps and nothing else does. I'm not really seeing an answer to that question from what we understand so far. Yeah. Like, you got anything? Because uh, if not, maybe we should just come back with it if we ever figure it out and then kind of sweep it under the rug if we never All do. All right, well... My, I mean, I could bullshit it, but it would be pretty bullshitty. Uh, clearly, cl- clearly the spirit is pharmacon. <laughs> okay, my bullshit explanation would be the disappearance, uh, the way that we talked about the disappearance of the subject 
and the lack of capitalization for the references to God as as pushing the self and God into a place where they are hard to distinguish has something to do with the the overall question of the untrustworthiness of the appearance of God because when you when you see God some appearing, you're bringing so much of yourself into that encounter. It's not clear that you aren't just meeting an aspect of yourself. And so I want to say that spirit gets the capitalization here because it is the place where God and the self overlap and are both valid readings. Insofar as as uh, we read it as as God, it is, you know, returning is a different route. God can't show us this because the return is is a work of, of breathing, is a work for, for beings that breathe. But insofar as we read it as the human spirit, our own spirits, then it's saying that that our own spirits that are responsible for our own breathing, you know, is not sufficient without the guidance of God. So there are two seemingly contradictory readings there that I think coalesce into the magnificence of the one appearance of the capital S. Well, I'm looking at the handwritten manuscript here. Don't tell me it's not capitals. It's not capitalized. Um, it's ambiguous because... Uh, All right, well... Fuck that. I still think the doubleness of reading spirit as, as, as God or self there is in there. All right, l- let me just explain the ambiguity here. So in the third stanza for yet saw him face to face. That's fourth stanza. What? Sorry, fourth stanza. Um, the S is definitely lowercase. It's a lowercase cursive S. A spirit is um, this big kind of loopy figure eight looking thing. And we see a very similarly, which is completely different from the S in Saw, which is a standard cursive S. Um, yeah. But in the first stanza, we see a smaller version of the figure eight form we see with spirit. So either, well, I think the most likely reading there is actually that Saw is uppercase. That seems unlikely, though. I mean, they're completely different formulations of the letter. Um, so, okay, let's just... Well, okay, so a third interpretation here is that Emily Dickinson didn't think very much about capitalization and just kind of wrote. Right, but that doesn't match up with her treatment of capitalization and her other works. So I'm going to dismiss that. I'm going to say the doubleness of God and, and subject, their inextricability in this stanza... The way that spirit could be read as either one matches the thematics of the poem itself. If she meant that as a capital, then we can read the capital as a sign of that importance. If she didn't, the meaning still holds, then fuck it. I think the most likely one is actually that saw is capital. I think that's insane. But <laughs> look no look look at the poem. Pull up the poem. I yeah, but why the hell would the saw be capitalized? I don't know, but it is. Like, because both times the word is saw and the S is written differently. It's the same word. I mean, sure. But I guess it's possible. No man saw awe because that kind of seeing would have to, to see the divine one would have to be divine. Sure. Whatever. I could, I could go there. Yeah. What? Okay. Let's just finish this. This was supposed to be shorter. Okay. So, am not consumed, old Moses wrote, and he himself drops the subject, mirroring the dropping of the subject throughout the poem, and also calling into question whether or not, in some sense, he was consumed, because his eye seems to be gone. 
Yeah, there's um a very kind of cool, almost monstrousness to the am not consumed. Am not consumed. Yeah, like, you know, you, you could see like, you know, I'm go- I already regret making this reference, but I'm going to do it. Um, mm-hmm. You could see Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> oh, God. Saying that as he's clawing his way out of the lava pit, like <laughs> burned mostly to a to a crisp being like, am not consumed. <laughs> um, well, I think as the one who didn't make that reference, I clearly have the higher ground right now. You do. And also to be clear, I we neither of us like any of the Star Wars. People like Star Wars, man. Maybe we should say we like them. Uh, They're all right. Middle of the road. The original trilogy is middle of the road. It's fine. The prequels that I just referenced are bad. Yes, okay. That's that's fair, and every righteous man or woman alive knows that. Right. It was just the only example I could see of someone almost being consumed by a thing and then not. I, you, I'd like, I'm... <sighs> Let's move on. Yeah, there's a good chance I'm going to cut that bit. Oh, you better not. Okay. So, yet saw him face to face. I think we've talked enough about the ambiguity there. Okay, I think the only question we have left with this stanza is what this is. Yeah, that's the big, uh, the big question. Um, That very physiognomy, I am convinced, was this. So the perception of, the direct perception of God's features. Um, So actually, physiognomy... um, kind of even removing that from the crackpot science angle Mm -hmm. is a word that does precisely mean the thing she's trying to convey here. Appearance of his face. Well, not just the appearance of a face, the appearance that gives way to deeper understanding. Right. Okay, so that appearance of God, I am convinced, was this. Okay, here's an idea, uh, just throwing it out there. Um, What if it's Moses's writing? Hmm... That very physiognomy, I am convinced, was this. I mean, I think it's, I think that's part of the answer. Uh, Because I, right, in as much as, what I want to say is, I want to say that the the crucial thing in this poem is the dropping away of the subject. Uh, And in as much as Moses reproduces that, then then Moses' little bit there is a portrait in miniature of the poem as a whole, so that this would both refer to what Moses wrote and what she has written in the poem. The important thing being that the appearance of God, uh, or the seeming appearance of God, shows itself in the disappearance of the subject. But then, of course, that is complicated in an intriguing fashion by the reappearance of the subject in this very line. Yes, that's well, I think that's what that that's going to be the thing that brings us from the level one to the level two secret meaning. Right, right, because very physiologically, I'm convinced was this uh, something about the recognition of the disappearance of the subject when confronted with the appearance of God uh, produces a return towards the subject. Ah, and we get return, uh, which was so so important a concept in the third stanza. Right. right? Uh, and, and, and the third stanza also is about, also says the spirit could not show. Oh, wait a minute. What if returning is a different route uh, 
what if the spirit could not show is is not necessarily uh what if that you read those connected like by a colon or a dash or something i.e returning is a different route the spirit could not show is it's is a phrase that stands alone as an explanation right god could not show or the self could not show because spirit could be read either way and the self does not show in this poem so the seeming appearance of god reveals the disappearance of the subject which is itself a um, reflection of the actual uh failure of God to reveal himself, which shows that in the subject's ability to disappear, it can mimic the genuinely absent presence of God. And there is something godlike about the subject, allowing it to reassert itself through this return. Did that make any goddamn sense? No, I, I followed that. Um, can you restate that in a way that other people might be able to follow. So basically what you're saying is that you're treating the spirit could not appear as a concrete expression there, right? Yes. And then you're saying that the manner in which the form of the poem can be a poem that conveys meaning without the presence of a subject is similar to how God influences the world without appearing. Right. Or rather, God in his true self does not appear. What what we what we perceive when we think we perceive God is not the genuine God, but merely God's house. Right. And um, oh, that's interesting, too, because God's house in another sense could be everything, the universe. Oh, yeah, that's very true. Um, because the, the poem is really playing on a level with the universal versus the particular nature of God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then from, from there further, I was trying to articulate that as the subject drops away from Moses, as the encounter with the appearance of God um, is itself so powerful that, you know, even if it's not the genuine God, we still, there is still this dropping away of the subject for us. Uh, but this dropping away of the subject for us then reveals to us that it is a reflection of the way in which God's appearance or the phenomenal world is is actually just a record of the, the non-appearance of the genuine God, which reveals a connection between God and us that allows us to reassert the power of our subjectivity. Yeah, you know, I'm starting to see this as um, much more sort of critical of God's absence than I was originally reading it. That's interesting. It's not where I was, what was going with it. Say more. Well, just the lines, uh, for breathing is the only work to be enacted now. Like, the spirit could not show because breathing is the only work to be enacted now. Like, there's no place for God in the living world. God takes your breath away. And that's a problem. That, that's not what I said, but okay. <laughs> no, it takes, it takes your breath away, and that's a problem. Uh, we need to breathe. No, but, uh, but no, I agree with you. But I also want to say that on another level after that, actually, the revelation of the non-appearance of God is redeems God on, on, on a different level, because, I mean, you could read it as, as having something to do with the question of evil, if you wanted. If the God, if what seems to be God, the, the being that appears and, you know, speaks to the prophets and, you know, messes with everyone, you know, if the, if God is interventionist, right, then the problem of evil is, is right smack there in your face. 
But if, if God is non-interventionist, uh, then we might be able to forgive him. Right, right. And I also want to say then that that reflects back into a non-interventionist conception of the self in a strange and interesting way. Right, right. It's, it's like uh, the idea of knowing God and seeing God is accompanied by a leaving of the world, which is interesting, especially considering Dickinson's reputation as a kind of a weird hermit. Right. And obsession with death and the basic fact that poetry is something that is, I mean, it's, it's not an, a form of intervention in the world in any direct way. It's, it's a form of trying to understand the world, which in her case was very, very literally accompanied by, by a retreat from the, what most people would consider to be an engaged life. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were saying earlier off air that that does tend to be overblown and she wasn't like crazy hermity. Yeah, no, as far as I understand it, she did see people sometimes and she spent a lot of time with very involved, like letter writing relationships with various people. And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, it gets, it gets overblown, but Nonetheless, she made a deliberate choice to live in an unconventional manner. A manner which is very similar to how I live. I don't go outside very much at all. Yes, but you're also, you also find ways of connecting with, with people like through this podcast. Okay, so I guess, I guess that means that you are Emily Dickinson and Emily Dickinson is God and God is a house. Did I follow the logic? Um, God isn't a house. Oh, and God isn't a house. Sorry, it's a common mistake. A lot of people make that one. The house is the myriad ways that one can perceive God, be it as a universe, as a pillar of clouds in a tent, as just any of the interventionist incarnations of God that have popped up at various points. Right, right, right. Okay, so how do we want to... How do we want to... What gnomic phrase do we really want to sum this poem up with? Well, did we figure out what this was in the last line? Because that's the, that's the level two secret meaning. Okay, um, I, I believe that we... S- the easy answer is, oh, it's poetry. Um, I, I want to say it basically means the disappearance of the subject here. the disappear- Or rather, the disappearance of the subject in the poem followed by its reappearance in this line. Um, this is a presence which makes itself known through its absence and thereby appears. Right. And just and that is why there is no punctuation mark at the end of this this stanza because in not having a punctuation mark indicating the conclusion it thereby asserts the genuine conclusion okay so uh our fun gnomic phrase will be um god isn't a house he's an implied subject or you know God isn't a house in the disappearance of yourself? Mm, nah, it's not punchy. Um, God isn't a tent and neither are you. God, uh, God isn't a tent, neither are you. Yeah, okay. God isn't a tent and neither are you. Does that sum it up? I feel like that's missing some of the points. This one is a little hard to sum up in a single gnomic phrase. How? But, it's the only chance on the podcast we get to do our own poetry. Okay, well, if we really are going to follow the entire argument, it would have to be, uh, you know that God isn't a tent when your own tent disappears, and that shows you that the fundamental failure of God to appear within the tent is the genuine appearance of the tent, and so you are a tent after all. Can we trim that down a little bit? (sighs) 
I don't know, man. Mm, I feel like we missed a secret meaning level on this one. Really? I think we got pretty deep. I, I think we haven't elegantly summed up the connection between the secret, the secret meaning levels, but I think we, we cut through them pretty well. I, I mean, I think the issue is that some of the, the work that we did in the middle there, Exodus and Israel and all of that is still in there too, and it's hard to get it all together at once. Right. Yeah. I'm just, how does Moses connect with the disappearance of the subject? Yeah. I mean, he clearly does because the eye disappears there. I mean, I could certainly do a reading with Moses as lawgiver. The lawgiver, dis- the lawgiver disappears into his laws that I think is there and vital. But again, we're getting more into Exodus interpretation than Dickinson. Okay, well, returning it uh, one last time to the notedly uncapitalized H that is rendered in this version as a capital H. Right. Great job there. Because, um, that, yeah, that, that's really obviously an uncapitalized H that's underlined three times. Yeah. Harold Bloom, man. That's why they call him Dirty Harry. Yep. Dirty Harry and Tricky Dickinson. <laughs> Whatever Moses. So it's Moses being like, yeah, I saw God and he's now capital H God. He's a lowercase H God. Like, yeah, I met God. What up? Not what up. What of it? Uh, Okay. Or you can also read um, the appearance of God as the seeing him face to face, him in lowercase. So you could also see that God's nature is fundamentally human, too. Well, or the or that God can't appear to us without appearing in a fundamentally human way and thereby not genuinely appearing as God. It's there's some kind of relationship there between in perceiving God as a man we can something. Oh, maybe Jesus. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe maybe we can see Jesus. Uh, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why Christianity is right. Because <laughs> because yeah, all right. The secret secret meaning level three of this poem is Jesus will come to save us all. There we go. Or, or that Jesus is a revelation of the promises of Exodus. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Uh, okay, um, how about... Well, I mean, she was, like, probably Christian, right? Well... She would have been. (laughs) Seems weird that we wouldn't bring Jesus up at all. Judging by this poem, she was some sort of weird Gnostic lady, which I think is pretty on point. Yeah, she just seems to be a person who was very interested in the idea of God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about what the capital what capital letters are to God, subjects are to human beings? Is that gnomic enough for us? Uh, what capital letters are to God, subjects are to human beings. Yeah, okay, I think that's good enough. Also tense. Also tense. Okay, so let's sum it up. So, to sum it up in our famous gnomic catchphrase, what, what do we want to call these? Mm. Um, stay tuned for what this thing will be called. <laughs> this segment, but it, right now it's our special gnomic catchphrase, which is capital letters are the same thing to God as subjects are to us. Also tense. Right. Beautiful. So what poem are we covering next week here? Uh, next week, stay tuned for our uh, full reading of Exodus. Sexodus. Mm, that or uh, uh Star Wars Episode 3. Or maybe some sort of mishmash of the two. Star Wars Sexodus 3. <laughs> Revenge of the sex. 
Uh, that's what was going on in God's tent. <laughs> it was having sex with Obi-Wan. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, well, hey, Obi-Man, Obi-Wan was much like Moses in that they were old men who lived in the desert. True. <laughs> it's fundamentally <laughs> true. Oh, the same ways to matter. Yep. All right, man. Good stuff. Okay. Thank you for listening to EE e. Poem Phone. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to EE e. Phone Poem. Uh, it's a podcast where we analyze poetry like this one. And yes, so be it good like. <laughs> so be it good like to us all. Uh, if you want more information, you can find us at uh, eephonepoem.tumblr.com. Or if I have money by the time this comes out, eephonepoem.com. They should redirect to the same place, I hope. The end. Uh, oh, and like, subscribe, rate, good iTunes on us. Make us be good on iTunes and we'll be good to you. It helps a lot find the podcast for people. Thank you and good luck.